0: 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you or... Perhaps if he's being slightly more sarcastic there, those who are approved among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. Well, who are we? I don't mean each one of us individually. I mean, who are we What makes us a church? What makes us Edinburgh North Church? I suppose there are all sorts of ways you might think of a church, and maybe someone looking in would draw their own conclusions based on what we seem to care most about. Maybe we're a social club with common values, a charity, a group of people really interested in Bible talks, a place to convert your kids, or perhaps the most cold and alien of them all, a missionary organization, just obsessed with numbers. The minute you come to faith, the job is done. Your purpose now is just to join the team, hawk the product. Well, a church in the Bible is none of those things. A church is fundamentally a gathering of human beings who share together in Jesus Christ. Notice how that idea frames this whole passage. Verses 17, verse 18, when you come together as a church, an assembly. Verse 33, 34, when you come together. And at the heart of the passage is the thing any true church gathers around, a table where we share together in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He's told us already in this letter that if we eat this covenant meal, we participate in the Lord himself. And doing that sort of thing together is profoundly significant. Eating one bread makes us one people. So the thing that makes us Edinburgh North Church is that we happen to be the group of Christians who will gather together around this table, who today will eat this bread, And so what an utterly shocking thing it must have been to hear the Apostle Paul say, when you Corinthians come together like that as a church, you actually do more harm than good. It would have been better for everyone, verse 17, if you'd all just stayed at home. In fact, your services are so abhorrent to God that some of you have died already under his judgment. Isn't that a shock? Could there be any more damning words for a church to hear how not to remember Jesus' death? Well, our table is set. In half an hour, it's going to be our turn. We're a little bit like the kid at the top of a slide, aren't we? Who's just seen the one before him crack his head at the bottom. Are we going to go... And yet, when God's word and his sacrament come together, it is the closest we ever come in this world to Jesus himself. It should be a moment that every Christian longs to celebrate and enjoy. So we'd better listen carefully, hadn't we, and make sure we don't make the same mistake. What if we're about to do more harm than good? Famously, these verses have often terrified Christians about coming close to Jesus in the way we actually most need to. But when you read everything Paul says here, you see that the truth is he's being deeply pastoral. He spends time getting right inside what was really going on in a way that is beautifully helpful and clear. It'll show us the problem all could see, the problem Paul could see, the problem they should have seen. And finally, the answer Jesus gives. First, in verses 17 to 22, the problem all could see. In fact, verse 18, Paul had heard about it from all the way over in Ephesus or wherever he was writing this letter from. There was a church they despised. And it was causing scandal and upset all over the place. When you come together as a church, I hear... There are divisions among you. And to hear how utterly ridiculous that sentence sounds, you need to remember that the very word for church there in verse 18 means gathering. That's who we are, the people God has gathered together in his Son under grace. So the Corinthians had somehow managed to turn church into an anti-church, a place where you divide the very thing which God is assembling Now, we've heard about those divisions right from the start of the letter, haven't we? There was a split down the middle in this church between the strong and the weak, the wise and the foolish, the high status and the unimpressive. And here, there is very definitely a class element to whatever was going on. From what we can tell, the church in Corinth wasn't any bigger than Edinburgh North Church. And even so, there'd only be one or two members wealthy enough to host them all. They met in the house of a man called Gaius, presumably with a nice large Roman villa. But then, as now, the majority of the church didn't live like that at all. There was nothing high status about being a Christian. They would have been slaves, manual laborers, Jewish immigrants, all sorts of different people, most of whom had never seen the inside of a Roman dining room in their lives. So imagine what it must have been like turning up in a place like that for a big church lunch. The commentaries say that a triclinium or a dining room in a very big house might just fit about 12 people, and presumably the ones used to that sort of place would settle right in, the significant people, the ones the Corinthian world recognized and approved but the vast majority would be left to stand out in the atrium. And when the servants come round with the food, well, who do you think got the attention? It's a passage held together, framed by deeply corporate language, because church should be. But look how Paul describes their meeting, verse 21. One does this. Another does that. Suddenly, they've gone all modern and individualistic. Some gorge on the food. Others are busy necking their second bottle of wine. The fussy ones start tucking into their own packed lunches. While the weak, verse 21, 22, what about them? Well, they leave church hungry and humiliated. And what that shows, verse 22, is hatred. You despise this family God is bringing together by grace. It might have seemed like the rich were just inconsiderate, but it is much deeper than that. It's deeper than social differences and class differences. It's an absolutely classic case of the Corinthian disease that has run right through this letter. The strong insisting on their own rights, indulging their own selfish appetites, rather than dying to themselves out of love for the weak. And so Paul says, verse 20, whatever you think you're doing, whoever's supper that is you think you're eating, it's not the Lord's. Imagine that, you're just playing at church. Nothing you did around that table meant a thing. Now notice, Paul's response isn't, some simple Marxist project. He doesn't try to obliterate all those social distinctions. Eat your fancy lunches, he says, but eat them at home. Those distinctions have no place whatsoever when you gather together around the cross. It's why pretty quickly the early church gave up on those famous Christian love feasts and paired what we do in church right back to a token bit of bread and wine Because the truth is, the church has been a mess, haven't we, right from the start? There was never a golden age. It's all too easy for things like class and status to make itself felt, for one group to feel humiliated and somehow less valued. The family whose kids won't sit quietly at a table, who just aren't used to sit-down meals. The ones who didn't go to the same fancy school the single mum, when churches are full of large families. Far too often, those things get in the way, even when we don't mean to make them an issue. And maybe we've pared it all back too far now, right down to the bone. But the idea was that in church, when we come together for something sacred, the focus was on nothing but the cross. Because that is what the superior Christians here had forgotten, isn't it? That actually they needed just the same Jesus as everyone else and just as badly. They might have eaten, but unless they grasped that, then nobody in that church was actually fed. So we don't have a slap-up meal anymore, I'm afraid, just a foretaste, just an appetizer. And we don't have a menu either. We eat what we're given, like any other family. If it's sausages for tea, then it's sausages we're all having. I personally would serve the best wine I ever drunk. I'd save it and serve it for communion, and I'd head to Stockbridge for a lovely artisan loaf of bread because it is a celebration, but that's not what's on the table. We don't all get to pour our own wine because we don't like the great juice. We have gluten-free bread normally here because there are one or two folk who need it. And they wouldn't have chosen that. It tastes like cotton wool, doesn't it? But it also tastes of love when all of us share that for the sake of one or two. It's not a menu or else it becomes far too easy to act in ways that put ourselves above other Christians. That sort of behavior is so natural to us a church they despised. And then in verses 23 to 26, we get the problem Paul could see. How could they have turned their church services into something so completely opposite to what the Lord's Supper is all about? Well, because there was a death they'd forgotten. We're so used to hearing this paragraph as part of our communion service. I would totally panic if ever, I left my little book of words at home, but I bet half of us actually know this paragraph by heart without even realizing it. And it means we can sort of glaze over these words without asking the really obvious question, why does Paul actually say these words about remembering Jesus' death right here in this letter to these people? Well, because this is the absolute heart of what Brings us together, isn't it? The Lord of love laid down his life for us, for all of us. We can miss in English just how plural this all is. Every verb. Verse 24, this is my body which is given for you all. 25, do this as often as you all drink it. 26, for as often as you all eat this bread and drink this cup, you all proclaim to the world, that Jesus' cross is your only hope. All of you, strong or weak, rich or poor, man or woman, around this table, every single one of you is a sinner and every single one of you is loved because the strongest, the richest, the preeminent one of all laid down everything in sacrifice for your place here You see, the fix isn't a social tweak. It's not economic. The fix is in here, isn't it? It's cardiac. Around this table, we have to recognize that each one of us is a guest of the one who laid down every right. However big we are out in the world, it is the Lord's Supper, not ours. He's the host Do you see how Paul stresses that? I received this supper from the Lord, verse 23. I delivered it to you. We don't get to set the terms. The moment we come to the table, we acknowledge that verse 3 of this chapter is true, that Christ is the head of every man, whoever we are. It's a hard thing for somebody who loves planning dinner parties to release control when someone else does it differently. But Jesus does it differently. We don't get to comment on his guest list. We don't get a say over how the table is set or who sits where. It all belongs to him. If he invites us to eat with him in forgiveness and love, then who are we to stay away? And if he invites someone else who we would never rub shoulders with at any other time, then who are we to treat him any differently? This is the one table in all the world where everyone is equal. All reminded that another man's death is the absolute center of our lives. So we come together and we do two things. We remember it and we proclaim it to God and to the world. While we wait in faith for the Lord Jesus to come and judge every one of us high and low on the same basis. Now, remembrance in the Bible, that isn't simply a mental act. This isn't some sort of exam revision. And it's not just a private, inward thing. This is a public, covenantal act. Notice that word covenant there in verse 25. This blood, Jesus said, it sealed a new covenant. The relationship between God and man was utterly broken by sin. And in pouring out my blood instead of yours, I've made a new one. And remembrance in the Bible means enjoying that relationship. When we make a remembrance, a memorial of Jesus, we're calling on God to act on account of the blood shed for us by his son, to treat us as forgiven people, welcoming us in love. And when he sits us down around his table, that is exactly what he's doing. So we eat and we drink and we're participating in Jesus himself, enjoying his love, enjoying the relationship with his father, renewing the covenant, which is going to matter later on because any time God's people claim the covenant in the Bible and God remembers, then he acts either for blessing or for curse. So it's a dangerous thing, isn't it, to participate in something like Jesus' death but make a mockery of it. There's a little hint of that already in verse 27. Notice what Paul reminds us of. The night Jesus gave us this very meal, he was betrayed. His supper sifts us even as we eat it. Are we truly clinging on to his cross or to something else. The very act of taking this meal is meant to be a claim that we have not arrived. The Corinthians were already people, weren't they? Remember that? In chapter four, already, Paul says, you have all you want. But the supper says, we're not yet people. It says we need reassurance of our forgiveness again and again and again while we wait for our rescuer to come. It's why it's okay that we just get that little token. It's only the starter. But in taking part in that little token, each one of us together is proclaiming that he died for me. I need to share in his body and blood just as badly as everyone around this table. If you ever go to Disney World, you'll spend hours on end standing in queues, unless you have money. If you can afford it, you can pay for a fast pass that skips the line and takes you straight to the ride. Not here, though. This is one cue nobody can pay to jump. Each one of us has empty hands, and Jesus gives. But what a powerful way that was for the richest Christians in Corinth. To acknowledge their complete dependence on him. To wait for their supper alongside every other ragtag slave and beggar in the church. Full of thankfulness all the while. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's why this meal is often called the Eucharist. That just means thanksgiving, that word. Because if you've understood it, then no matter who you are, you can't eat any other way. The problem Paul could see then in their selfish, divided gatherings was that there was a death they'd forgotten, which led to something even worse in verses 27 to 32, the problem they should have seen. What was really happening as each one of them pushed their way into church with their own elbows? Well, there was a body they'd defiled, they should have seen that by despising God's church on earth, they were defiling Christ's body in heaven. That's the shock of verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning his body and blood. But as so often in the letter, they haven't really Notice the link between them and him. Do you remember how many times Paul's had to point that out? You guys are joined to the Lord, chapter 6. How can you join your bodies to a prostitute? You guys are joined to the Lord, chapter 10. How could you think about participating in demons? You guys are joined to the Lord, chapter 11. How could you think about treating his body unworthily? And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? How do we eat this supper unworthily? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean eating while being unworthy. That has been a paralyzing way. Many Christians have misread this because... Unworthy people are the very ones this meal is for. That's all of us, isn't it? It's what we confess every single time. It's why he's given it to us. So that every one of us can recognize we're unworthy and know at the same time that we're loved. That he's made us worthy. It's not that the rich were meant to crawl to this table like beggars. It's that all of us come to this table as sons. Guests of the Son. No, the unworthy thing isn't the person. The unworthy thing is the way some of them were eating. And the biggest clue to that is hidden in plain sight. That word, therefore. The Lord's Supper, verse 26, is a proclamation of his death for the sake of others. And therefore, there's one particularly unworthy way to eat and it's the great Corinthian sin. To eat in an unworthy manner is to eat without dying. To come to his body and blood as if there was something special about you, something that made you more important than anyone else. Isn't that exactly what they were doing? But here's the thing. To mistreat those around the table is to show utter contempt for the one whose body and blood is on the table. Because he gave that body and blood for them. To lift yourself above your brothers and sisters denies the very gospel this meal ought to proclaim. And if God cares this deeply for those brothers and sisters, then verse 30, it is begging him to step down and judge. Notice that he's talking there about judging, professing believers, professing Christians in Corinth who won't judge themselves, found themselves judged by God, all in the hope that it would turn them back to the cross, even at the last minute. Because if not, verse 32, well, there is a fate even worse than death. One, our Father will do anything to spare us, So anyone who wants to come to this table, he says, better do two things before they eat. Look in and look around. First, verse 28, look in. Examine yourself. Be honest about your own heart. But also, verse 29, look around. Discern the body. Recognize what it means to share in Jesus, to have communion with him, It means communion with everyone who belongs to his body. That body word, it does double duty here, doesn't it? Paul's used it already in this letter to mean everyone who eats the one bread. He's implied it in verse three when he talked about Jesus as our head. that's body language. And it's the metaphor that will fill all of chapter 12 right after this as he talks about the whole church. So to discern the body Doesn't mean to recognize in what sense Jesus is here with us through the bread. It's to recognize what a sacred thing it is to be united to Him and to each other. It's not primarily a warning there to unbelievers or to children. This is a warning to Christians who won't recognize their own brothers and sisters. So look around. And ideally, do those two things at the same time. We look in at our own sin with one eye on the church family, asking, how have I been treating these people who Jesus died for? Often these verses have been used to encourage a kind of deep, morbid introspection. Am I worthy enough to take communion? Is there sin in my life that I haven't recognized and repented of? And certainly, coming to the table with unrepentant sin cherishing that. That is an unworthy way to eat. This is a sacred moment. Christ is spiritually present with us. But the more that sin violates the very heart of what this meal proclaims, the more unworthy it makes our eating. That's what was happening in Corinth. It is far more unworthy to come to his table harboring bitterness against someone else in this room than it is to come all cut up because you've given in again this week to sexual temptation. So as we prepare for communion, as we examine our own hearts, it's those relational things which we should be searching for, especially hard. Isn't that just what Jesus said? If you've fallen out with a brother or sister, then stuff the sacrifice. Go and make things right with them and then come back to the altar. There are certain sins which deny the very nature of this sacrament, what God is doing in this meal. That's why, by the way, we can't do communion over Zoom. Not because it isn't proper communion, but because it would actually be an anti-communion, playing at this great sign of the unity of God's people in Christ when we're all sitting privately in our own homes, just gathered with people exactly the same as us a disembodied church. But we can make far deeper divisions like that while we're all sitting comfortably in the same room. So let's take time while we hold the bread in our hands to recognize the people Jesus gave it for. There's always a danger that we try and enjoy this supper in our own private little spiritual chapels, maybe especially while we're all sat miles apart from each other like this. We close our eyes and we wallow in a cocoon of our own spiritual feelings. Maybe it would help us discern Jesus' body if we actually looked at each other from time to time. We're meant to be eating together, aren't we? Enjoying each other's forgiveness, not just our own. Even the person in this room you are most tempted to criticise the one you're convinced looks down on you, the one who's probably worrying exactly the same thing, why not use that time while you're holding the bread and the wine to pray for them, to thank God for giving his son for them and rejoice in that. Repent of how you thought badly of them. Ask him to help you find ways to make things better, to serve them, to love them. That's how we recognize Jesus' body. But it's a dangerous thing to share in that body and blood without caring for those he gave it for. And so finally, verses 33 and 34, the answer Jesus gives. And once you've understood the problem, the answer is beautifully simple. When you come together to eat, wait in other words, we are to eat as one family gathered round the cross. Notice that the fix isn't to hide from the supper and to stay away. So often, isn't that how we try to fix things? Either we pretend there's nothing wrong or we just avoid communion altogether. And if any church had good reason for doing that, it was this lot, wasn't it? Some of them were literally dying because of the way they'd abused this table. But the table wasn't the problem it was the solution jesus says come to me you need it so badly that i gave my life for you and that makes it just as ungrateful to stay away as it is to push yourself to the front one implies that you need it less than others the other says you matter more than them it doesn't fix anything to hide the fix is to recognize the problem and then kneel down at the cross together with changed hearts. Every one of us the same. Fill your stomachs at home, he says. Church is the place to feed on Jesus. That, by the way, is the exact opposite of what I was taught in high churchy Anglican circles. We were meant to fast until chapel so that the wafer was the first thing we ate. But it's not the food in our stomach that defiles this sacrament. It's putting our stomach above other people, isn't it? So instead of snatching and superiority, the cross says, wait. It's so simple, but there is something deeply lovely in that word. My lexicon says it's what you do when you stand at the door of your house waiting for someone to arrive when you line up to greet them with open arms. To wait like that is to welcome one another, just as Jesus welcomes us, one family, under his grace. So you don't have to be perfect, says Paul. The other stuff can wait till I come. Nothing matters like this. But if the cross isn't right at the heart of your shared life together, then everything you're about as a church is horribly wrong. So we will eat around this table together in a moment, participating together in Jesus' death, claiming it as ours with a manky speck of gluten-free bread and a thimble of grape juice, because that's what's on the menu. But the moment it touches our lips, we will be bonded together in blood, A family we don't get to choose, each bought by the Lord, along with billions of others around the world and down the millennia, one body of sinners, deeply loved, humbled together in him. Well, let's give him thanks then for what we're about to receive. Our loving heavenly father who gave his only son that we should not perish But enjoy life with you forever. We praise you from the bottom of our hearts for your grace to every one of us who you have known and loved and made your own. Help us, we pray, to see our own sin more clearly as we meet around his body and blood. Help us, we pray, to see one another as you see them, infinitely precious and entirely loved. And as we share together in Christ, would you fill us with the knowledge of your presence here with us by grace so that we can leave this table more trusting and more humbled and more thankful for his cross in Jesus' name. Amen.